Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 13, Project Gemini Flight 1, Gemini 3, The Unsinkable Molly Brown. Last week, I introduced NASA's second major manned space program, Project Gemini. Intended to serve as a stepping stone and proving ground between Project Mercury and the ambitious Apollo program, Gemini was envisioned as a fast and frugal program that could answer critical questions. The main goals were to develop the techniques required for orbital rendezvous and docking, perform long-duration flights of up to two weeks, exit the vehicle and learn what it takes to do work in space, and improve the accuracy of landings. Gemini started almost as an afterthought. In fact, when work originally began on it, there wasn't even an official budgetary line item for it. It was thought to be so cheap that NASA planned to pay for the entire program by diverting existing cash on hand. The plan was to make a slightly larger Mercury capsule that almost exclusively used equipment from the Mercury spacecraft in order to save development time and expense. Under the pressure of budgetary and time constraints, Gemini soon expanded far beyond the original goals, and far beyond the modest financial expectations, and became something very different. Though often forgotten in popular accounts of the early space program, Gemini managed to establish its own unique identity, determined answers to crucial questions, and taught the NASA management what they didn't know they didn't know. I'm confident that without Gemini, there is no way that Apollo would have succeeded in its goal of landing men on the moon by the end of the decade. Today we will be discussing Gemini 3, which raises the obvious question of what happened to Gemini 1 and 2. Gemini 1 served as a test of the Titan II launch vehicle and an early boilerplate version of the Gemini spacecraft. It was important to be sure that the spacecraft and launch vehicle would work together as expected before attempting to launch humans or even more advanced test spacecraft. For this test, most of the interior equipment for the spacecraft was replaced by instruments that would report back on the dynamics of the launch, onboard environment, and performance of both launch vehicle and spacecraft. Of particular concern was so-called pogo oscillations. Earlier flights of the Titan II were susceptible to this form of vibration, where the rocket vibrates along the length of the vehicle, like a pogo stick, hence the name. While this was no real issue for the Titan II's main payload, thermonuclear bombs, it posed serious problems for astronauts who expected to be able to operate control panels while being propelled into space. Thankfully, the flight of Gemini 1 went nice and smooth, no pogo oscillations in sight, and showed that the system was ready for a second test with a more realistic spacecraft. Gemini 2 would provide that test. Gemini 2 was a second unmanned test of the Gemini capsule on top of a Titan II rocket, but this time the capsule was nearly the same as what was planned for human use. It flew on an 18-minute suborbital flight in order to test onboard systems and make sure that the heat shield was able to withstand the punishing temperatures it would encounter during re-entry. Counterintuitively, the suborbital re-entry was actually more demanding than the later orbital entries due to the steeper angle of the trajectory. Also, fun fact, this spacecraft was later fixed up and reused on a second suborbital test for the Air Force's ill-fated Manned Orbital Laboratory project, making it only the second ever spacecraft to be reused. As we all know, X-15 number 3 is the first. With the two uncrewed tests proving a success, it was finally time to fly a Gemini mission with a human crew on board. Before talking about the crew of Gemini 3, I should mention that it was not the crew that was originally planned. 
Taking first place in line again was to be Alan Shepard, who had been assigned as the command pilot on the mission, with astronaut rookie Tom Stafford serving as the pilot. Unfortunately, Shepard had to be medically grounded after being afflicted with an inner ear condition known as Meniere's disease. The condition caused unpredictable episodes of dizziness, vertigo, and hearing loss. At first, Shepard tried to keep the condition a secret for fear that he would be pulled from future flights, but he eventually had to fess up due to the extreme danger the condition would pose if an episode struck during a mission. Sure enough, he was promptly pulled from future flights. But don't worry about Alan Shepard, he'll be back. Instead, keeping with a familiar pattern, the command pilot for Gemini 3 would be our old friend Gus Grissom. Accompanying him on this flight was New 9 newcomer John Young. Since we've already talked about Gus Grissom back on episode 4, let's get to know NASA's 7th astronaut to fly in space. Also, just as a quick aside, for purposes like this, I'm not going to be counting X-15 pilot Joe Walker as an astronaut. It makes the narrative confusing, makes my numbers not match what you usually see in the history books, and Walker was a test pilot at the time, not part of the astronaut corps. Anyway. John Watts Young was born on September 24th, 1930 which actually means that his 86th birthday is two days after the airing of this podcast, so happy birthday. John Young might be my favorite astronaut. Okay, it's impossible to pick a favorite, but he's definitely up there. I'm really getting ahead of myself here, but the dude flew on two Gemini flights, two Apollo flights, including walking on the surface of the moon, and two shuttle flights, including the first ever flight of the shuttle. His incredible six-mission career stood unchallenged until April of 2002 when Jerry Ross finally surpassed his record by launching on his seventh space shuttle mission. Young attended the Georgia Institute of Technology and graduated with a degree in aerospace engineering. Following college, he joined the United States Navy and served on the destroyer USS Laws during the Korean War. He was soon sent to flight school and began serving as a test pilot, testing weapon systems for the Crusader and Phantom Jets. Before joining NASA, he set the climb time record behind the stick of a Phantom II jet. From a standing start on the runway, he reached 3,000 meters in just 34 and a half seconds, and 25,000 meters in 227 seconds. Of course, he'll be setting a new personal best in a slightly different vehicle in just a few minutes here. Gemini 3 was a shakedown mission. It was limited to only three orbits, though the astronauts pushed for an open-ended mission with no preset return time and would serve as an extended test of the spacecraft and associated procedures. The main highlights of the mission plan were a series of maneuvers that would change the spacecraft's orbit. It would also serve as a test of the vehicle's precision landing capability. In addition to carrying twice as many astronauts as usual, Gemini 3 carried several science experiments. However, this time the scientists had learned their lesson and made them as easy to operate as possible for the astronauts. Astronauts are pretty smart guys but when they're in space, they have a lot on their minds. So the easier and more straightforward the experiments, the better. Two of the experiments were mounted in the cabin with the crew and simply required the astronauts to turn handles on the exterior of the case at certain times. One studied the effects of zero gravity on cells, and for reasons I'm not entirely clear on, they chose sea urchin eggs as the cells to be studied. The second studied the effects of space-based radiation on human blood samples. One more experiment was designed to test a potential way to improve radio communications during re-entry. As spacecraft flew through the upper atmosphere at ridiculous speeds, the air broke down into an ionized gas, which radio waves have trouble passing through. 
The experiment called for water to be sprayed into the plasma sheath encapsulating the spacecraft to see if it would help allow more of the signal to pass through. At this point in the space program, it had become a well-established tradition to allow the astronauts to pick the call sign for their spacecraft. These unofficial names resonated with the general public over the somewhat cumbersome official mission names. Remember Mercury Atlas 8? Probably not, but Sigma 7 rings a bell. Command pilot Gus Grissom, with his experience on Liberty Bell 7 still firmly in his mind, chose the slightly mischievous title Molly Brown for the Gemini 3 capsule. The name was a reference to the survivor of the Titanic sinking and subject of contemporary Broadway musical The Unsinkable Molly Brown. NASA managers were not too impressed with this somewhat less than distinguished call sign, but allowed it in light of Grissom's second choice, Titanic. Gus Grissom may have gotten his joke in, but his was the last in Project Gemini, as the remaining missions were simply named numerically. But don't worry, we'll get back to fun call signs with the Apollo missions. After a hiatus of nearly two years, March 23, 1965 arrived, and it was time for NASA to once again send humans into orbit. Both astronauts were awoken in the pre-dawn hours, enjoyed the traditional astronaut breakfast of steak and eggs, and were driven to their waiting spacecraft. The pre-launch countdown went so well that they were slightly ahead of schedule, and John Young complained about the extra time he had to spend uncomfortably positioned on his back. The ultimate of first world problems. At 9.24am, the Titan II missile ignited and glided off the pad so smoothly that the astronauts on board weren't entirely sure they had launched until told so over the radio. The hypergolic propellants of the Titan II created a flickering red flame, notably different in appearance than the Atlas launches, as Gordon Cooper called out, You're on your way, Molly Brown. Two and a half minutes later, the first stage shut down and the second stage ignited. The manned space program had completed its first of many, many staging events to come. The second stage was smaller but carried a much lighter load, so it was able to burn through its propellants quite a bit slower than the first stage. Three minutes after staging, just five and a half minutes since sitting stationary on the pad in Florida, Gemini 3 was in orbit, and Gus Grissom was the first astronaut or cosmonaut to travel to space twice. The spacecraft separated from the vehicle and fired the Ohm's thruster for the first time in order to move away from the upper stage. Rookie astronaut John Young almost immediately proved he was worthy of his new job title. Shortly after orbital insertion, the oxygen pressure gauge suddenly dropped, quickly followed by anomalous readings from a number of other instruments. Young's many hours of training kicked in, and he realized that there must be an issue with the power supply for the instrument panel itself rather than the systems it represented. He switched to the backup power supply, and everything returned to normal. The time between initially noticing the problem and resolving it was less than a minute. Things move fast in space. Young also successfully completed his tasks related to the blood samples carried on board. Grissom, noting that he perhaps had too much adrenaline in his system, turned the handle on his sea urchin egg experiment so hard that it broke. Whoops. After one full trip around the world, in only about 90 minutes, Gemini 3 completed another first when it fired its Ohm's thrusters for 75 seconds, thus slowing its orbital velocity by 15 meters per second and dropping the highest point of its orbit down near the lowest point, circularizing the orbit. It had become the first manned spacecraft to change its orbit. Halfway through the next pass on the other side of the world, Grissom again fired these larger thrusters, but this time to the side, making a slight change in the orbit's inclination, or its tilt compared to the equator. 
For its last maneuver on the third orbit, Grissom again used the Ohm's thrusters on the back of the spacecraft, towards the direction of travel, this time for two and a half minutes, dropping the lowest point of the orbit well within the upper atmosphere. This way, even if the retro rockets failed to fire, Gemini 3 would quickly return to Earth thanks to the drag caused by the thin, but not that thin, atmosphere. Among its planned firsts, Gemini also laid claim to another first that mission controllers had not planned on. While in orbit, John Young removed a corned beef sandwich from his pocket, and with a deadpan expression, offered it to Grissom for a bite. After a good laugh and a few bites each, the sandwich was returned to its pocket for fear of crumbs getting into the instruments. The illicit sandwich had been provided to Young by Wally Schirra, though astronaut boss Deke Slayton seems to have given the contraband, if not approval, then at least a wink. This light-hearted moment became something of a minor scandal when the public, and more importantly Congress, found out about it. NASA introduced stricter standards on what could and could not be carried aboard the spacecraft, though as we will see, plenty of other unofficial items will make their way into orbit over the course of this history. Hey, at least it wasn't the toilet plunger from Faith 7. Gemini 3's final task would be to test the re-entry sequence. After three successful orbits in space, and with its time now limited by its new low orbit thanks to the Ohm's thrusters, the crew flipped the switch to jettison the equipment module from the rear of the spacecraft. Molly Brown next fired her now-unnecessary retro rockets, proving that they would work properly on future missions. With the retro firing complete, the retro module was the next to go, floating off to meet its fiery demise without the aid of a heat shield. As re-entry began, the astronauts were pleased to discover that it aligned well with the simulators used during training, even down to the color of the plasma sheath now surrounding the spacecraft. Young activated the communications experiment that sprayed water into the plasma, and technicians on the ground confirmed that it did seem to have a positive effect. Though the fact that I've never heard of this system before and its absence from future missions makes me think it couldn't have been too strong of an effect. One of the main goals of Gemini was to improve landing precision. With the Rogallo wing now out of the picture, that goal rested entirely on the ability of the spacecraft to use its modest lift to adjust its landing point as it roared through the upper atmosphere. Unfortunately, there was quite a bit less lift than anticipated from wind tunnel tests, so Gemini 3 ultimately splashed down 84 kilometers short of where they had been planning. Another surprise for the crew came after the parachute deployed. In order to provide a more gentle landing, and help ensure that the door stayed on top in the water, the spacecraft was to land more or less horizontally on its side. Imagine the astronauts landing in a seated position as opposed to on their backs. To do this, the parachute would deploy from the nose, and after stabilizing, a second cord running between the doors would break free so that the vehicle would be suspended from two points, on the nose and the rear. This worked great! except the transition from vertical to horizontal was so violent that both astronauts were flung into the instrument panel. Grissom even cracked his faceplate. Due to the off-target landing, the crew had to wait about a half an hour to be recovered. And with Liberty Bell 7's watery fate still dogging him, Grissom insisted they waited out inside the watertight spacecraft, rather than taking the risk of opening the doors with no one around to help. Grissom may have come to regret his bites of the sandwich, as the capsule rapidly heated up in the midday sun and slowly rolled on the waves of the Atlantic. He soon got to experience the sandwich again, in the other direction. A little seasick, but none worse for wear, both astronauts and the unsinkable Molly Brown were soon recovered and placed safely aboard the aircraft carrier USS Intrepid. 
Gemini 3 was in the books and it was a complete success. But there was no time to wait. With Project Gemini already behind schedule and the first flights of Apollo looming over the horizon, the next mission was in a mere two months. Experiments retrieved, lessons learned, and sandwiches confiscated, NASA turned its sights to the next flight. Next time, we'll stretch our legs a bit and talk about Gemini 4. This next step in Project Gemini shattered the American record for mission duration, saw NASA's first attempt at orbital rendezvous, and, um, hmm, something else, something else. Ah, yes, it's time for astronaut Ed White to leave the capsule, if he dares. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. Thank you.